welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. I know it has been a few weeks from our last episode. Thank you so much for your patience. Um, as many of you know, I'm still a clinical fellow. And to be honest, I just had a hard time keeping up over the past couple of weeks. But I promise I'm hard at work to get you plenty of upcoming episodes. Plus, today we have a special treat where we'll try out a slightly new format for the show. So let's jump in and meet our team today. We have three guests visiting from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. First up is Katie Sharma. Katie is a fourth-year medical student at Emory University School of Medicine who is applying to internal medicine residency programs this year. She graduated from Georgia Tech in 2010 with a business degree and began a career in healthcare consulting and analytics, eventually pivoting to pursue medicine. Katie's interest in ID was initially piqued by her fantastic ID medical educators at Emory, including her invited guest discussant, who gave lectures on various ID topics during her preclinical years. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Dr. Amalia Aldridge is originally from Seattle, but moved to Atlanta for her internal medicine residency at Emory and stayed there for additional training, where she is currently a second year ID fellow. She's interested in disparities in HIV care, HIV prevention, including novel ways to deliver care and medical education. Hi, can't wait to be on. And lastly, our final guest is Dr. Varun Fadke, who you might remember from episode number 26 on culture-negative endocarditis. Varun completed his residency training at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University, and then he moved for his ID fellowship training at Emory. He has been on the Emory faculty since graduating and serves as the Associate Program Director for the ID Fellowship Program, a core faculty member for the IM Residency Program, and most recently he was named Assistant Vice Chair of Education for Clinical Reasoning. I will also point out that he is currently the IDSA Medical Education Community of Practice Featured Educator for February 2023. Hey everyone, I'm excited to be on the show today. So as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we always start off by asking a little, you know, non-medical question about a piece of culture that you've enjoyed recently or that brings you happiness. Maybe I will start with you, Katie. Anything that uh, you want to share with everyone? Sure. Um, One thing I've been exploring recently is um, the Japanese art of flower arranging, which is called Ikebana. And I personally have not been doing it. Um, but my brother, who is a designer and, you know, very artistic, I bought him all of this like Ikebana starter kit and book uh, for Christmas. So I'm excited to see like what he comes up with because anything that is like aesthetically pleasing, he is an expert <laughs> at. So I myself um, am not that great at flower arranging, but I'm excited to see, to learn more about it and then also see what he comes up with. Yeah, a gift for him and a gift for you. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, how about you, Malia? Up until recently, I had three honeybee hives in my backyard. I've been very excited working on getting honey and got my first batch of honey. Wow. But then <laughs> one hive died. Aww. And then after the first hive died, the other two swarmed and left. So I now have no bees. Oh, no. So I'm trying to figure out um, by the spring if I'm going to restart this process and do it again or not. Whoa. I don't know anything about beekeeping. (laughs) 
I have a bee suit. <laughs> have you been experimenting with um, getting stung by bees on purpose to cure all what ails you? Yes, definitely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> well, Fred, what about you? Um, so I recently discovered a podcast that's now pretty old, but uh, I'm behind the times. It's called The Moth and have been listening avidly to the stories uh, through that podcast and actually recently bought their book, uh, which is called How to Tell a Story, uh, which is really good. Well, those were three very totally different things. I love it. They were related though, right? Flowers, bees. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So today's consult question is about a 55-year-old who came in with fever and altered mental status. But we are trying something a little bit different with our format today. Vern, would you sort of introduce everyone to to what we're going to try to do in this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think, Sarah, you've been very kind to let us experiment with this format today. So I have the pleasure of letting uh, Katie and Amalia talk through uh, an interesting case and uh, some of the infectious disease pearls associated with it. And hopefully what I'm going to try to accomplish with Sarah's help is to offer our perspective on how as a teacher in infectious disease, you might add to the discussion of a case in real time, uh, which is something we're doing all the time on rounds or in clinic uh, when our learners are quite independent uh, in a lot of their clinical reasoning, but you're trying to push them to the next level. And hopefully by modeling the ways that we uh, have that conversation on today's episode, uh, listeners can Uh, employ some of these strategies in their own teaching practice. Great. Well, Katie, can you get us started? Yeah. So I'm going to start with the HPI. We have a 55-year-old man with a past medical history of hypertension and type 2 diabetes, which was complicated by a prior episode of osteomyelitis and second right toe amputation, who is here with fever and altered mental status. The history was primarily obtained from his wife. So the patient was acting like himself until about one day prior when he started complaining of a headache. Later in that same afternoon, he became argumentative with other family members, which is incongruous with his normal behavior. He was on the phone with his wife and suddenly stopped making sense. And at that time, she called EMS. En route to the hospital, EMS reported that he was initially lethargic, but then became agitated and combative in the ED. Two weeks ago, when he went, he had gone to urgent care for a cough and rhinorrhea. He was diagnosed with a viral syndrome and recommended supportive care. In the ED, his vitals were as follows. His temperature was 39.8 degrees Celsius. His blood pressure was 171 over 100. His heart rate was 140. His respiratory rate was 25. On exam, he was noted to be toxic in appearance. His pupils were equal round and reactive to light and accommodation. He had moist mucous membranes and no oral lesions. On neck exam, he had a shoddy cervical lymphadenopathy, and he had spontaneous hip flexion upon passive neck flexion. For the cardiovascular Exam, he was tacky, the systolic murmur allowed us at the left upper sternal border, 
two plus radial pulses, and trace bilateral lower extremity edema. His pulmonary exam was normal as well as his abdominal exam. For his skin exam, skin was intact with no rashes on the extremities, but had a partially healed rash on the left frontal scalp. His extremities, as noted, he has a right second toe amputation. And for neuro exam, he withdrew to pain. For the initial lab results, for CBC at a hemoglobin of 15 and a hematocrit of 45, white blood cell count of 17, and platelets of 225, and his chem panel was largely normal with a glucose of 130. Blood cultures were, were drawn and are pending. So the ED calls you about this patient. What other targeted information do you want to ask them? What is your differential diagnosis and immediate next steps? I always like to start out with thinking through a problem representation because I've just gotten a lot of information. And so trying to boil that down into a one or two sentence summary helps me out. So for this man, I would say he's a 55-year-old gentleman. He has a history of hypertension and diabetes um, who presents with an acute change in his mental status and is found to have fever and leukocytosis along with a positive Brudzinski sign. And then I can use this to help frame my initial differential diagnosis. So, you know, we're on a febrile episode. I'm obviously going to start thinking about infectious causes first. And in this patient, um, given the altered mental status, like the relatively acute altered mental status, I'm definitely thinking about meningitis and encephalitis. And then within that category, I'm thinking... Is this a bacterial meningitis? This is someone who has diabetes, so is that increased risk in general of bacterial um, infections? I just don't know how well controlled or poorly controlled his diabetes is. I'm thinking about viral causes, like a viral encephalitis, especially with this like healing rash on the forehead. Is that a hint towards something? Um, and then also non-infectious causes, like is this a non-infectious autoimmune encephalitis? There was some viral illness a couple weeks ago. Is that a hint? And then further down on the differential are other infectious causes of meningitis or encephalitis, but I haven't heard anything that makes me think that he's at risk of some other um, like infectious meningitis encephalitis causes. Could this just be another different infection like bacteremia, given this history of diabetes with this osteomyelitis? Could this be a skin and soft tissue infection? And that infection is just prompting some altered mental status? Or is this not infectious at all? Is this some other reason for altered mental status, like something like alcohol withdrawal, some sort of ingestion, some metabolic derangement, some sort of stroke? But Based mostly on the exam and a little bit on the history, those things seem a little bit less likely. So given the differential, um, in talking to the ER, I'm very happy to hear that blood cultures have already been drawn. And so now I would prioritize both getting a lumbar puncture and starting antibiotics. And then kind of down the line, depending on how things are progressing in the ER, could think about a CT of the head. Um, so I'll touch quickly just on the LP because I feel like when we get called, this is often what the question that people really want answered is what type of CSF studies might be helpful to order. 
in this patient, I would definitely get basics. I would definitely get an LP to start. Like, I feel like the pretest probability here is high. Um, so I would just get cell count with differential, a protein of glucose. Um, I guess I didn't say an opening pressure, but that could be useful too. And then bacterial cultures. And then if it's available, I would consider something like a multiplex PCR, like a biofire, um, and then save a bunch of extra fluid in case extra tests are warranted. Um, like I, I mentioned before, he has diabetes, so he's like at an increased risk for normal infections, I would say, but not necessarily any more kind of opportunistic infections. So I wouldn't spend, send any additional special tests at this time, like um, a cryptococcal antigen or fungal or AFB cultures right now, but I would want that option in the future if I needed it. So in talking with the ED about some LP, an LP, it would be helpful to know, is this something that reliably could get done quickly, imminently, or not? And that would also help um, guide antibiotics. But this is something that I would also be kind of recommending some antibiotics to the ED at the same time. I think the discussion up to this point has been great. And uh, I, everything that uh, Amalia shared about her thought process about the case is aligned exactly with how I'm thinking about this patient that Katie has shared with us. And what I want to do is zoom out a little bit and recognize that this is a common challenge for clinical teachers who are working with a terrific group of learners across multiple levels. And you are trying to add to the case. And oftentimes our reflex as teachers, experienced clinicians is to augment medical knowledge, to basically pause the case presentation at this point and say, okay, here's extra stuff that I know that I want you to know as well. And that may be preceded with some question asking, like, hey, what do you know about the sensitivity of Brudzinski's sign? Or what was that article again about CT before LP? Um, but I think there are skills that clinical teachers can deploy about how to ask better questions than those, perhaps. You can also, as a clinical teacher, focus primarily on clinical reasoning and try to understand the thought process in your learners and probe them to see if there are any ways you can refine their illness scripts or management scripts. So in this case, you might ask a question like, hey, if this patient didn't have Brudzinski's sign, which is pretty uncommon, would you still be really suspicious about meningitis? And if the answer is yes, why is that? As a way of getting at their threshold for a can't-miss diagnosis. And if the answer is no, that's an opportunity for you to, to point out that this is a can't-miss diagnosis. And then I think the last thing you could do is progressive problem solving where you change some aspect of the case that is going to force you to make a decision differently, which we can talk about in a future aliquot. But that's sort of how I would think about advising a teacher who is faced with this very common scenario. Katie, do you have any other questions for Amaya before you tell us more about the case? So one thing I've been thinking about during this case, which I feel like the guidance or teaching has changed since I started my, uh, you know, pre or clinical years um, about 18 months ago was you 
need to get a CT before the lumbar puncture versus now it's not necessarily and like what are the indications uh, for a CT before a lumbar puncture? It's a great question. Um, so I now, I probably oversimplify this in my mind, but I think about a CT, the whole purpose is to basically check for some contraindication for doing an LP, especially like a space occupying lesion. And I think about that particularly in significantly immunocompromised patients. So patients with advanced HIV, patients on like some high dose immunosuppression. And so those are patients that I definitely would like to get a CT on first. Um, but otherwise, we can, we've actually seen the flip side that patients that sit waiting for a CT without an intervention like giving antibiotics can be extremely detrimental to patients and can have huge um, devastating effects on mortality. So um, if someone needs a CT, it's someone that I'm definitely going to start antibiotics in immediately, not wait for an LP, um, just like get antibiotics in them as soon as possible. Whereas if it's someone that doesn't need an LP, like, I'm sorry, doesn't need a CT, um, that's someone that if an LP can get done quickly, we can do antibiotics. Thanks. That's helpful. And then another question I had uh, was regarding the role of steroids and if there is any role for steroids in a patient like this. Um, I would say, so steroids, if they're going to be helpful, are really only helpful right at the start, like when someone presents. So I would say this is kind of a perfect patient to consider giving steroids to in that if you're going to give dexamethasone, you should give it just before or I think within 20 minutes of giving antibiotics as that gives the most benefit. Although it's really only most helpful in people that um, definitely have some sort of neurologic deficit, either a focal neurologic deficit or like a diminished uh, GCS. Um, and especially, I think of it mostly as helping with things like hearing loss, but not necessarily other aspects. Great. So the LP is performed. Um, but before we get to those results, what antimicrobials are you going to recommend to the team? I will take a quick stab at adult patients, but I may need some help from Sarah for pediatric cases. <laughs> um, so in someone that I'm thinking about or have a high suspicion, clinical suspicion for meningitis or encephalitis, my kind of choice or the standard empiric choice of broad spectrum antimicrobials is vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and acyclovir. And then like we just talked about, often dexamethasone is if early. And then in, in patients that are immunocompromised or are 50 years of age or older, then I also add ampicillin for listeria. I don't know if there's differences in children. Yeah. So the usual empiric regimen for children, really once they're several months of age or older is similar with vanc and ceftriaxone, which is covering that pneumococcus and meningococcus, which is the two most common causes of bacterial meningitis for infants and children. 
I think the key difference is remembering that common pathogens for neonatal sepsis and meningitis would include a couple specific organisms, group E strep, E. coli, other gram-negative enteric bacilli. And you're also still thinking about listeria in this really extreme of age, similar to how you consider listeria in older adults. So for neonates, you might be looking at a regimen that has something like AMP, ampicillin plus an aminoglycoside, typically gentamicin, or perhaps ampicillin with some type of expanded spectrum cephalosporin if it's appropriate for your patient. But there's a little bit of overlap in the pathogens in children who are a couple months old. But at that point, you really are still sticking with that similar regimen of VANC plus ceftriaxone. So I'm sure we've all experienced an LP getting delayed for some reason or another. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask Karun, which I've asked in real life, of how would antibiotics exposure prior to obtaining an LP alter the CSF profile? Yeah, this is a great question and a question that comes up very often, specifically as a follow-up to that discussion that you just had about whether to pursue a CT first, because I feel like that conversation about doing a CT is often predicated on this like hypothetical countdown timer that we have of time to antibiotics and all the precious time that you're wasting trying to get the person to the CT scanner. And I think recognizing that there are a lot of other reasons that LPs also get delayed and, and being kind to our colleagues who are seeing the patient at the bedside about you know, the need to get coags and platelets and positioning the patient and waiting for the person with procedural expertise, positioning the patient and so on. There's a lot of reasons that LPs get delayed, but uh, that should not necessarily preclude the patient from still getting timely antibiotics. So then it's our job to help interpret the results after antibiotics have been given. And I think certainly antibiotics influence the yield of microbiologic tests. So antibiotics can sterilize the CSF, especially for some of the common pathogens within a couple of hours of exposure. Um, the gram stain should still be positive uh, and multiplex molecular-based tests should still be positive, which is one important reason that they exist and we should use them. Um, but the biochemical abnormalities should not resolve. And so this is why one pearl that I often share with teams who are worried about uh, giving antibiotics before the LP is that it still has a, a, a strong uh, negative predictive value if you do the LP and the CSF is normal uh, because the CSF should not normalize within hours of getting an LP or really even days of doing the LP. There's really cool old studies where people used to do end of therapy LPs for bacterial meningitis. And even at the end of two weeks of antibiotics, the CSF is still very abnormal. So that's sort of how I would think about that question. I'm going to actually insert a question here myself uh, as a way of modeling how a clinical teacher might uh, interject in the case at this point. And this is that progressive problem solving that I talked about earlier, modifying a specific aspect of the case in a hypothetical way to push your learner to extract even more deliberate practice from one case, even if they don't see another case of the same thing again for a while. 
So in this case, you might ask a question like, what have you previously been taught about choosing antibiotics for a patient with bacterial meningitis who has a severe penicillin allergy? Um, I don't think I've ever been specifically taught an answer to that question, but I've had various iterations of it that I've had to look up. And so I guess the first is I've definitely seen people on vancomycin and meropenem instead of the ceftriaxone. So if someone doesn't have a severe penicillin allergy, you're not worried about kind of the side chains um, of these beta-lactams, that would definitely be an option of switching your ceftriaxone over to meropenem. And then if you needed listeria coverage, you could add on something like Bactrim. And then if you really truly have someone with a severe, like life-threatening penicillin allergy and feel like meropenem is not an option, um, I have definitely seen fluoroquinolones like Moxie or Cipro used, and they, those could be substituted in this setting. And then I actually had to look this up of any additional options, and Astrianum would be another option for these patients. That's awesome. Uh, and that sort of fits with what I've seen before as well. I actually have not had to make this decision, fortunately, that many times. And I think one really amazing thing that you did in your answer that is great for Katie and any other learners that might be on the team to see is, is modeling how you looked up stuff in real time, because I would do the same thing in this exact scenario. And uh, I think one one thing I would add here is what where would you where would you go to look it up? I'm just curious to know what resources you would suggest to Katie and others on the team. Um, I usually first go to IDSA guidelines. They're now sort of old, but still good. Um, meningitis IDSA guidelines. So that would be my first line. But if I'm on the move and I need to look something up on my phone while I'm being as a consultant. I'm probably either pulling up the Samford app or like the Johns Hopkins antibiotic app. And those resources always have like some section that discusses the penicillin allergy. Awesome. I will say one thing uh, I enjoyed about my infectious disease consult elective last spring was that we often rounded with the ID pharmacist. So especially at my level, when I may not even know the right questions to ask, it was really nice to uh, have a conversation about all of the myriad options that we could go with. Yes, definite kudos to our ID pharmacists. They are definitely people who are turning to for every single patient to help us make better decisions. I adore them. So I have the some results from the lumbar puncture for you, and I'll read those to you now. So the opening pressure was normal. The cell count was 1,100 with 80% neutrophils. The glucose was 60, and as a reminder, our serum glucose was 130, and then the protein concentration was 220. Awesome. Um, Katie, what do you think about this? 
So I'll admit this is something where I pull up the table about CF, CSF studies because, you know, it's not something that I'm looking at on a regular basis. But before I look at my handy dandy cheat sheet, um, I will recall some things, you know, from preclinical years is when you think about a bacterial infection and in CSF, you think the glucose will be low because the bacteria are eating all of the glucose and that the protein is high. And I might be making this up because bacteria has proteins in it. So it makes it higher, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. <laughs> and then for like viral, um, you would also, you would see maybe a normal protein for viral, um, infection and then you would see a normal glucose and those are the two things or those are the things off the top of my head that I recall but I know that um, it, the CSF profile can change if you're thinking about TB meningitis um, versus bacterial viral and then there's also other things um, unrelated to an infection that would change the CSF profile as well. Oh, and then that the viral um, meningitis is associated with like a lymphocytic dominance and uh, bacterial is neutrophils. Perfect. I love it. I am also, I'm someone that likes having things in buckets whenever possible and um, having easy ways to remember them. I also think about glucose the same way as like bacterial meningitis and glucose the same way as you, that the bacteria are eating up all the glucose. <laughs> I'm glad we all. <laughs> uh, um, and then I don't have a good way to remember protein. I'll just be honest. But I honestly, I think of, Again, I don't know that this is a great way to think of it either, but I think of protein almost as just excess inflammation. Like there is something there that shouldn't be there and it's creating some sort of inflammation and then you're seeing a bunch of protein. And so it can definitely be elevated in bacterial meningitis. Usually, I think of it maybe not quite as the same degree as elevated in viral meningitis or encephalitis, but um, that can have a very big variable range. And then I completely agree that like, if I'm seeing a lymphocytic pleocytosis, I'm thinking more viral and there can be other more esoteric things, but that's kind of the most common thing. Totally agree. Um, okay. Yeah, that's great. I echo everything you've said, Amalia and uh, your initial approach, Katie, uh, as a teacher in this scenario, uh, one approach that is very helpful, especially when you have a team of learners across multiple levels, is to take advantage of the fact that you have a lot of other really good teachers on your team that are not you. And this is an opportunity to ask them either in real time, if it's not that busy a day, or for the next day to say, hey, I think this would be a great case for us to collectively review an approach to abnormal CSF. Um, Amalia, would you be willing to uh, kind of walk us through that either later today or tomorrow before rounds? Uh, I think we could all use a review and it would clearly apply to this case that we're discussing today. Uh, 
that would be one approach to uh, sort of dividing the task of teaching, allowing more experienced learners to practice their own teaching skills, which is a way of consolidating their knowledge as well, and engaging all members of the team more effectively. Some, I guess, because I'm the faculty discussant in this episode, I will add a few pearls to interpreting the CSF profile. Um, I think uh, you, all of your points that you made about cell count and protein and glucose are on point. I think one challenge we often have is in patients who have a traumatic lumbar puncture and have a lot of red cells in the CSF. There is a equation to correct the CSF profile for red cells that I always look up. Um, it is important to recognize that there are some pathogens that we specifically associate with hemorrhagic meningoencephalitis, the key one being herpes simplex virus encephalitis. And so it is often our reflex to write off red cells in the CSF, thinking that it's a traumatic LP, but sometimes it can actually be a clue to the etiologic diagnosis. Um, the other is to have a specific narrow differential diagnosis for causes of really, really low glucose, uh, which I think is a sort of more ID esoterica that we, we often have to bust out because we see the patients with these unusual diagnoses, but thinking about TB meningitis, fungal meningitis, in addition to routine typical bacterial meningitis, as well as non-infectious causes of meningitis that can cause a really low glucose, like carcinomatous meningitis um, and some autoimmune causes of meningitis as well. So we have some additional information from the lab. The gram stain came back showing gram-positive diplococci. And then as we, you know, time went by, we waited for the bacterial culture to come back and it was positive for strep pneumo. So Amalia, I was thinking about, um, we started this gentleman on several different antimicrobials. And so, you know, I'm wondering if we can start to peel back some antibiotics I'm thinking at this point, we can probably take off the acyclovir, but I'm not really sure um, where to go with the antibiotics. Beautiful. That's, I agree completely. Um, so let's say that this man is on vancomycin, ceftriaxone, ampicillin, acyclovir, and totally agree we can get rid of the acyclovir. That ampicillin we have on for listeria coverage, and we have a different answer, so we can get rid of the ampicillin. And then the question comes up of vancomycin and ceftriaxone. The so ceftriaxone is covering kind of the usual suspects of bacterial meningitis, including that strep pneumo. So I would definitely want to keep that on. And then always comes up the question of the vancomycin. So the vancomycin is on for rare uh, incidents of resistant strep pneumo. Um, and so this is covering it just in case the strep pneumo is resistant to penicillin. Um, 
And this comes up not infrequently once, let's say you get an answer. Let's say you grow strep pneumo on culture, like in this instance. The good news for this patient is we will soon know whether or not this person has an organism that is resistant to penicillin or not. So if this patient doesn't have some contraindication to being on vancomycin, then I would just keep that on until we have an answer. However, in real life, we often do not isolate strep pneumon culture, and rather we might base the diagnosis of strep meningitis on a gram stain or on a multiplex PCR. Um, and in that case, I'd say it's a little bit trickier since we know we will, will not get susceptibility results. Um, I have looked this data up not too long ago and did not find that there was great guidance for when to peel off the vancomycin. And so in practice, it's usually more kind of a risk-benefit discussion about the individual patient. And if there is some harm being done by the vancomycin, like how competent do I feel that we can peel it off or do we want to wait a little bit longer? Bryn, anything else on that? No, I agree 100%. I think you are correct in pointing out the very common scenario where we know or have a lot of confidence in what the organism is, either because of a pretty characteristic gram stain appearance or a positive molecular test, but won't get susceptibility data with a culture. And there isn't a good evidence-based answer for how to manage antibiotics in that scenario. And therefore, it often comes down to your individual thresholds as a experienced clinician. And as a teacher, I think it's really important for us as more experienced clinicians to share the reasons why our thresholds exist. And a lot of the times, hopefully, our thresholds are based on actual evidence, like, for example, the prevalence of penicillin-resistant pneumococcus in your community or more generally versus the likelihood of the patient actually having pneumococcus based on an isolated gram stain or positive molecular test, which we know can also have false positives versus the cumulative toxicity of drugs like vancomycin. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, our thresholds are not based on pieces of data like that because those pieces of data are either difficult to find or inaccessible to us, or we haven't looked them up since the last time we had a patient with meningitis, which may be you know, months earlier, and therefore the, our thresholds get shaped by the last bad thing that happened or the, or the last decision that we thought was incorrect. Like we had a patient with meningitis and I narrowed too quickly and I think things got worse, so I had to re-expand. And so now for the next few months, I never narrow their antibiotics. Uh, I know that, you know, many listeners might think, well, that's never happened to me. Um, but I think it happens to every clinician. Any, anytime you make a decision in uncertainty, your future decision-making gets shaped by either a success or a failure. And just modeling that out loud for learners is really important. Uh, I think in a patient like this where, you know, they were quite ill when they came in, they had a really abnormal CSF. I think many people would have hesitance about narrowing to just ceftriaxone which I think would be totally appropriate. Um, and I would feel similarly. And I have a two part question about 
taking care of this patient in the you know immediate future. Um, what kind of precautions uh, do we need to worry about? And then the second part of the question is, um, you know, when you hear about like a meningitis um, case at a college dorm or something that everybody in the dorm has to be treated prophylactically. And is that something that we would be worried about in this case as well? Obviously not a college student, but when would you consider prophylaxis? Um, great questions. Um, so patients with suspected bacterial meningitis should be on droplet isolation for the first 24 hours that they're on antibiotic treatment. Uh, this is actually maybe a good thing that's come out of COVID is that we're essentially all in droplet isolation all the time anyway, since we're wearing masks. So um, it's a little bit of a moot point currently. Um, and then in terms of prophylaxis, this is definitely something I've had to look up before and it comes up really for specific organisms. So there are, prophylaxis is not needed for close contacts of people that have strep pneumo. People that have um, Neisseria meningitis, there are some certain circumstances where close contacts are recommended to have prophylaxis. And um, close contacts are really like people that have spent a significant amount of time, so maybe eight hours or more, in close contact, meaning like in that person's sphere within like three feet, um, or they've had some exposure to oral secretions. So this could be like roommates, people that live in a household together, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, that kind of thing. Um, and so those contacts for people with Neisseria meningitis can get prophylaxis with either rifampin for four doses or a one-time dose of Cipro. And then for patients that have um, H flu, their close contacts um, can also be given prophylaxis. And those close contacts are defined a little bit differently um, in large part because of vaccination rates. So these are if you have an unvaccinated household member that is less than four years old, or there's like unvaccinated children within a daycare that are under two years old, those people, those children can get um, rifampin for a total of four doses. Great, thanks. So are there any other learning points about meningitis that you would like to share? I'll just bring up, so we did not talk about healthcare associated meningitis or like ventriculitis, post-surgical infections. That could be its own full episode, I think. Um, but I will say that the main pitfall is trying to use kind of our usual meningitis in antibiotics for that subpopulation. Um, but rather, you treat for a much broader range of bugs. So you're treating for MRSA, you're covering for pseudomonas, and cultures are very, very important. And these are probably my favorite IDSA guidelines um, if you have a patient in that situation. Uh, and we did not talk about like intrathecal antibiotics, but this is an area that sometimes intrathecal antibiotics come up and there's a little bit on the guidelines in that. Um, and then the other thing I'll just touch on really quickly is that I think we are seeing increased availability of multiplex PCR testing in a variety of different settings, but including like um, for CSF 
And so I have a love or hate relationship with these tests. Um, I actually think I'm, I'm becoming more swayed that I think that they can be very useful, especially in this setting in particular. Um, so there are some false negatives to be aware of in this setting. And I think the one that I think about most commonly is cryptococcal meningitis. So, um, our institution uses a biofire and the, if a cryptococcal PCR on the multiplex is negative, but I have a high clinical suspicion, like I am not at all trusting that PCR. Um, this is an area where I would definitely be looking at a CSF cryptococcal antigen. Um, and then the flip side of that is you can have some false positives and you might get something that doesn't really fit the patient's presentation or their underlying like health background, they're not immunocompromised and something pops up. So it is just something to always take with a grain of salt and think about the clinical presentation and the patient's underlying background. Um, the patient is a host to help interpret those results. Awesome. Thanks, Amalia. Um, I'll add just a couple of things here uh, as the from the perspective as the clinical teacher. And uh, I think one of the really fun things about teaching on the ID service is getting to teach learners the process of being an ID doctor. And so in this case, it might be, hey, let's go and look at the gram stain together. Uh, let's go and look at the CT scan with radiology together and ask specific questions and uh, build out our understanding of CT findings in patients with meningitis. Um, and then I think one of my favorite parts of being an ID doctor is asking the why questions and I think modeling that is really important. And, you know, this is febrile podcast and uh, Sarah, I'm sure is always just like me, always asking, like, if it isn't an immunocompromised patient, I need to find the reason that they're immunocompromised. And, and, and so in this patient with <laughs> pneumococcal meningitis, which, which happens, it's, it's a disease process that uh, clearly affects previously healthy people, unfortunately, but this is the kind of patient where we would ask why, and you would, want to order some additional testing, you obviously think about an HIV test. Um, and um, you would also think about evaluating this patient for immune, immune defects in the effectors that take care of encapsulated organisms, uh, in particular antibody uh, defects like plasma cell dyscrasias and so on. Okay, now everybody else has to go around and say their favorite IDSA guideline. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is the guidelines on vertebral osteomyelitis, I'll say. I love it. <laughs> because that's the only one I've looked up before. I was, well, I was going to say ventriculitis. I will say I use the central, um, central line bloodstream-associated infection one all the time. Like, I... Might as well just have that one flow chart printed on my uh, desk. That's although that one's a bit that one's a bit old now. It is, but you are so right, Sarah. That <laughs> I think it's because we get so many questions about like, should I take the line out? When can I put yeah. the line in? How long should the line holiday be? Uh, <laughs> if you just like tattoo that flow chart. But my, <laughs> I, I'm going to put in a plug for the more recent uh, gram negative therapy guidelines. Those mm -hmm. are also fantastic. Mm -hmm. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah. And the one other thing I'll mention, I probably should have mentioned it when we were talking about chemoprophylaxis is um, 
This is more for pediatrics, but I think even adult ID people should know that the AAP Red Book, which is like our Peds ID Bible, um, it's very succinct and particularly for questions about returning to daycare and prophylaxis and close contacts. That's what, if you call a Pete's fellow, <laughs> that's what we're looking at when we answer your question. Um, and I never trust that I remember it. So I always have that pulled up and you can, you can find it online and look up specific chapters. So I think sometimes you get called because when you're, you know, you might be an adult ID clinician who's asked a question about a child that's in the family or something like that. So um, if you don't have close access to a Pete's ID friend, that's sort of the resource that we use. I call the Pete's ID friend. On yeah. <laughs> um, well, any other things that you guys want to add? I was going to say, and you don't have to add this. You can totally erase this, Sarah. <laughs> uh, and Amalia knows this about me because she rounded with me. I always like to ask like a question to which I don't know the answer. That is like <laughs> some provocative, like, approach to management like hey what if this patient got better in five days and they want to discharge them is there a po option um uh but i, I don't think we can I don't, there's nothing to discuss there's no data <laughs> yeah yeah but i think it's good to model asking questions to always push yourself to to think like hey could we do be doing this fundamentally differently than the prevailing dogma yeah Thank you so much to Katie, Amalia, and Varun for crafting this awesome episode. Don't forget to check out the website, federalpodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.